Welcome to the Speech Link. I'm your host, Sharp Oshart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. If you've done your graduate school practicum either recently or in the past, you probably remember that experience. You may even vividly remember your supervisor. I sure do. And that was decades ago. She had a huge influence on me. Conversely, I've also had the pleasure of supervising many graduate students' practicum. And as I look back from this vantage point, I wonder truly which one is more difficult, being the grad student or the supervisor. Each one has its challenges. Grab your pen and paper. There's a lot of good information here for both. Here we go. My guest today is Mary Beth Plankers, MSCCC, SLP, ATP, which recognizes her assistive technology professional credential. Mary Beth and I have traveled together doing seminars through the Bureau of Education and Research, BER, and I can personally attest that Mary Beth is a multi-talented speech-language pathologist, and notably to our topic, she does quite a bit of clinical supervision. Also, she is the facilitator of the Regional Assistive Technology Center at Minnesota State University at Moorhead. Significantly, this center is a leading library of universal design for learning and assistive technology tools. And as alluded, her areas of expertise are multifaceted. Augmentative Alternative Communications, AAC, Language Disorders, Behavior Issues, Telepractice, as well as Autism Spectrum Disorders. Now, this is Mary Beth's second podcast of parents, and it's great to have you back. Welcome to the Speech Link, Mary Beth. You are most kind, Sharon. Your words are most kind. Thank you. A pleasure to be here today. Good. Now, today we are talking about supervising speech-language pathology graduate students, right? Correct. Yes. Very excited to share. Yes. And and we're doing so, we're supervising in what settings? These settings are across a variety of settings that include school, clinic, private agencies, hospital, clinic, all of those environments where students can have the opportunity to learn through externships as they expand upon their expertise as a graduate student. All right, good. So pretty much anywhere where they do therapy. Correct. I'm thinking back to when I did my, what I called student teaching at the time. I was in the schools. And do you remember your time when you did your teaching in the schools or wherever you did it? What was your first experience there? Well, that's part of my story that I'll be sharing here in my podcast today. So I did two different school settings, but they were quite opposite of one another. So I'll be sharing about that in my story as I talk about clinical supervision. Great. Well, let's begin. Let's start with talking about what is the actual definition of clinical supervision. So if we begin with that, Supervision uh, as a clinical supervisor is truly a process that consists of a variety of patterns looking at behavior, the appropriateness on which depends upon the needs, the competencies, expectations, and the philosophy of the clinical supervisor and the supervisee, along with specific situations that will take a look at the tasks that are expected, the student or client who's involved, 
the settings as we just shared, and there are other variables that we'll address as we continue on. Our, we want to take a look at the goal of the supervisory process because it's truly looking at creating professional growth along with the development of the supervisee and the supervisor. It truly has a dual purpose. We want to remind, remember that it's that we assume that our end result is looking at optimal service to clients and our students. This professional growth and development of the supervisee and supervisor are truly enhanced when the supervision or the clinical teaching involves a self-analysis and self-evaluation, which I'll address here shortly. We want to think about that effective clinical teaching also promotes the use of critical thinking and problem solving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, Shar, but when I left my college or institution, I didn't walk out with the door with a cookbook recipe of how to be a speech language pathologist. But again, based off of my supervision was my takeaway to begin in the world of work. So I'm hoping to share my two roles that I currently share. And as you um, had stated, is I am a university clinical supervisor. And I've also been a supervisor in what now we refer to as externships or what we called practicum and internships. Okay. So we can't, we need to keep in mind, ASHA, the American Speech and Hearing Association, has specific requirements. And when one is a supervisor, whether we're supervising through externship or through a university setting, that we do have at least 25% of graduate student total contact time with each of the clients or students that we're directly observing. That amount of supervision can be adjusted upward if the student's level of knowledge, experience, and competency warrants it. So I want to move over now to share about my personal story of my supervision. Yes, tell us. The university that I was attending was under trimester. So I was in my second to last trimester, so excited to get out in the world of work because most of my course, clinical experience occurred on campus. And again, it's a very controlled setting. Um, we actually, our clinic was in the basement of a lower level. No light of day ever came through. So finally, <laughs> to be out and about in the real world, I was so excited. I was assigned to a public school um, um, speech pathologist, and she had three settings. We had an elementary and two private school settings. So excited. Mm -hmm. I had found out shortly before I began that she was coming back from a maternity leave. Met her the first day, and again, you know, your level of excitement meeting. Her first comments were, Don't think this will be all fun. Ooh. After umpteen years, I still can hear her, Char, tell this story. And I thought, <laughs> no. Oh, as it continued, it was not a positive experience whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And it was like, finally, long story short, in the end, she gave me a notebook and a pen. And she said, you need to write down some ideas that will make you a better speech pathologist. Mm -hmm. And right then and there, mm -hmm. I begged my parents to do another profession, look at something else. Mm -hmm. And my parents said, finish your last trimester and then we'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. So 
This was now moving on to a full internship with ultimate dread, just the opposite of where I was when I started in the second trimester. My last trimester went to another public school. It was a K-12 building. When I walked in the door, the lady said, I am so happy to have you with me. I can't begin to tell you what awesome students I have. And thank goodness for her, I am a speech language pathologist to this day. What a blessing. And long story short, Long story short, she has been our clinical director at the university where I'm currently employed as a university clinical supervisor. So oh, I started my career and I think we'll be ending our careers together. What an awesome experience. And so again, my parents were relieved. Of course, I had a career and again, it has been one of the most positive experiences ever. So I had to be reflective. Why was that first experience so awful? I didn't know about this because since then I have become a parent myself. If there's such a thing as postpartum blues, Mm -hmm. that had to have been it. It I, I I hope things turned around for that speech pathologist and for the students she works with. But again, I'm so thankful that I had an awesome supervisory experience, which in turn has made me more cognizant of how I supervise graduate students in our field and in the profession of speech pathology. Yes. Uh, A supervisor is your influence. Yes. And not only are you learning about speech language pathology, obviously, but you're learning about attitude and you're learning about yourself as you work and you claw your way, trying to find your way and how to work with the kids Mm -hmm. and personalize and individualize and what techniques are best. And I remember my biggest concern as an undergraduate and as a graduate student in speech language pathology, I was always concerned about how do I translate or transpose the information that I am learning in these books and journals and listening to the lectures, how do I translate that into implementing and working with the kids or the adults? How do you do that? And the supervisor, in in my estimation, is that transition person. Correct. Very well stated. So from that experience, Char, I personally have put together five guidelines that I'd like to share with you in regards for a supervisor. Okay, good. When I look at those guidelines, what is our role and responsibility? And again, I find all five of these guidelines will work across public school, hospital, clinic, private agency, private settings, in-home healthcare services. I think these can carry over to all those settings because again, As a clinical supervisor, we carry a lot of responsibility. But again, when I put it into perspective, there are five things that I think we need to provide. I'll mention all five, and then I'll walk through each one just briefly. Mm -hmm. My first one as a clinical supervisor is to provide guidance. Following guidance, we are guiding, we are modeling, we are giving examples, we hands-on sometimes for some. Again, we see a wealth of medical um, issues that that we come across no matter where we're providing services Mm -hmm. and guidance is needed, especially for graduate students. 
The next one is feedback. And I didn't realize how valuable feedback has been until I moved all my feedback electronically. Mm. I use OneNote and the students, I see their lesson plans, their organization, and at the bottom, I give them feedback. And when they evaluate me at the end of the semester, 100% documentation, I really appreciated the written feedback you gave me following my session. Mm -hmm. Good. Another guideline is supporting with tools and strategies. As a clinical supervisor, we have been in the trench. We have worked with a variety of individuals. And again, we start to develop what I call our toolkit and strategies. And I think it's imperative we share that information, not making our graduate students figure it out the hard way, but again, that we give them a wealth of resources. Mm-hmm. From there, they can make the decision as to what works best with this disorder type. And I think we need to keep in mind both assessment and intervention. The fourth guideline I have is reflection. And reflection not only is what went well, what might I change, and what would I do differently. Again, reflection I find addresses generalization. What I have taught or what I have demonstrated today, how will that carry over to the real world tomorrow? And my last guideline is vision. And I think we need to expand upon our expertise. That can include continuing ed, expanding on an area of interest. My area of interest expanded over to assistive technology and augmentative alternative communication. And again, where we start to develop a high interest and expertise in specific areas. Mm-hmm. So using these guidelines, guidance, feedback, tool strategies, reflection, and vision, I think support what we do and why we do it. Excellent. Good, helpful information. Let's go into detail a little further. Um, When you're a supervisor, how do you evaluate the graduate student's progress? What are you specifically targeting? Yes, thank you for asking. We have what I use, what I use from the university is called Calypso. And then also all of our externship programs use the same rating. There are three areas that are evaluated. Graduate students are evaluated on their involvement in evaluation, treatment, and their overall professional involvement in their setting. So there is a rating scale of a one to five. Five is the best. A one would mean needs improvement. A two means increasing engagement. A three means they're meeting it. A four means they are exceeding. And a five means it has been met. And so again, it's a nice breakdown. We use this rating system um, at midterm, meaning a about six to seven weeks into a semester. And then we so it's a midterm evaluation. And then we use it at the end of the end of the semester. So then we have anywhere from 13 to 16 weeks total. This aligns with the supervision that is listed and documented through ASHA. And again, this the language used in Calypso is the language used for clinical supervision through ASHA. 
Okay. Because I was wondering, and I, I would imagine that you share this uh, toward the beginning of your experience together so that the student is going to know how they're going to be rated. Correct. And it kind of lays that groundwork of here are the categories that we're going to be addressing. Yes. The students always have access to this so they can go in and look ahead of time of what they will be rated on. And here's the nice part. Students at midterm and at final go in and rate their own performance, and then the supervisor also rates their performance, and then a meeting is held where scores are shared. Okay. Provide, it'll per, also provide um, an opportunity for reflection, as I included in one of my notation of the five um, guidelines. Right. But again, it includes reflection so that if there are things the student should have more experience with or should increase their use of or make additional changes, um, any of that that also may be documented in this resource of Calypso. Okay. Now, Calypso, what is that? It is It is one of my most favorite tools. Um, prior to, we did all this rating via paper pencil. And Calypso is where we have now an electronic resource for rating graduate students as clinical okay. supervisors. So basically, it is an electronic resource. I know it is a paid resource, but I have been very impressed by it. Students are able to log their hours electronically in there, mm. along with their evaluation. It's a one-stop shop, and I, I received no benefit for talking right. about it other than to share it as a great rating tool, again, and the fact that it aligns with ASHA's requirements is so okay. helpful. So if we Google it, what do we do? Calypso rating scale? What? Yep. I would refer to it as called calypsoclient.com. Calypsoclient.com. Okay. I would imagine there's a fee involved, but we won't get into that. <laughs> I have no clue what that involves other than university pace. You just use it and you like it. I love it. You know, I think that's really good, you know, for the graduate student, but I think that also gives you some structure too. Yes, it is so efficient and time-wise. I'm sure my rating and evaluation time that I go through, and it's nice you can continue to access it throughout the semester. I mean, it's not a one time you go in, but you can continually make notations as the semester continues on so that you're not doing all your work overnight or the day before, but that's how I utilize it. If a student has done an evaluation, I can go in and mark it. If there was something in treatment that I saw that I really liked or something I would recommend changes to, I can go into Calypso and make those notations along the way. Sounds good. Okay. Take me into some details. You can go into the evaluation, into the therapy implementation, anything along those lines, but give me some details as to what you say, what you do, what do you look for, et cetera. Wonderful. All right. So as we break it down and we're going to evaluate our graduate student, let's start with evaluation. And these are also good reminders. If a student hasn't had that experience, it reminds me I need to make sure they're involved. So under evaluation, it takes a look at conducting screenings and prevention procedures. So if, for example, a new referral comes in, this would be a chance for a graduate student to do a screening of either language and articulation, looking at tier one, tier two, tier three of 
uh, prevention or intervention. The other thing under evaluation is being able to take a good case history. Again, students are very excited to begin evaluating, but I always say back it up. Let's acquire some background knowledge about the student or client, whoever that might be. The other one is students need that experience in determining what are the best evaluation instruments and procedures. And again, it's easy as a supervisor to say, choose this, this, and this. But again, they need that experience of identifying what would best determine good outcomes. Um, the other under evaluation is being able to administer and score diagnostic tests. Um, as you had previously said, Shar, students learn about those in their coursework, but it's one thing to learn about it in the coursework, but then to put it to practice. And here again, we evaluate that. In addition to evaluating, we sometimes have to adapt when we do evaluations. And again, that's always a learning curve for students. What do you mean? Not everybody sits picture perfect in the chair? No, <laughs> you might adapt and provide a test under a table or in a hallway. Again, how to be flexible and adaptive during evaluation. Uh -huh. The other one that we target is having background knowledge of those ideologies and the characteristics for each of communication and swallowing disorders. And again, that continues to increase. When I look at some of the um, little people that are coming out of our neonatal intensive care units, there's no longer a, a single diagnosis or a, a single medical um, documentation. There could be a wealth of things for a child. And again, students need to have those understanding what are some of the ideologies and what are some of the additional characteristics that impact the work and assessments we do. Mm -hmm. Once they've completed the assessments, the next area that we evaluate is, can they come forth with a diagnosis? What might that look like? Is it language, receptive, expressive? Is it a voice? Is it fluency, whatever? And again, what might those look like? And then once they've developed the diagnosis, what are the recommendations for intervention? My firm belief is a good evaluation leads to good intervention. And then last but not least, they need to write a report. And again, they've just begun, as we know, their world of report writing. But again, a good written report is critical to the recipient or to the team who will be providing services. And then are there other referral of services, occupational therapy, physical therapy, vision and health, um, deaf and hard of hearing, who might some of those other team players need to be included for appropriate services? Mm -hmm. All right, so this delineates the areas and I'm thinking that we're all pretty familiar with these. Yes. Um, and some are more for the medical or even clinical worlds. Correct. And to a degree, less <laughs> for the schools. I have to say, you know, when you say, you know, take a case history, you know, that's nice. But a lot of times, you know, you don't have that luxury to be able to do that unless you are able to meet with the parent and, and talk with that parent. So I know that there's, you know, there's going to be some modifications that have to be made, Correct. but those are all really good things to strive for. Yes. But there has to be modifications within each setting, I would think. And that's, a, you're, 
that's an excellent question. I've had a student ask me that who may be working in the school. And I'll say, if parent isn't someone available, what about teacher? Can the teacher give us background knowledge mm -hmm. on the student? Where are they at performance mm -hmm. in the classroom? Or where are they at when making transitions within the building? Again, we want to think big picture. And so that we make sure we have enough background knowledge to justify what we would use in evaluation. Okay, good. Now, specifically, are we expecting graduate students to come in and know how to do most of the diagnostics? Or are they observing the supervisor? And if so, how many times do they observe? Or does the supervisor do half and the uh, student does, or the uh, graduate student does the other half? You know, what are some options for actually doing the the diagnostic process? That's an awesome question. So some universities I have learned do not have a diagnostic course. Mm. The university where I work at, we do have a course that's strictly for diagnostics. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't, again, if we've acquired someone who might be a post-bac from an, a different undergrad program, that would be the first thing I would ask is, again, we give our guidance as I said before earlier on the guidelines for supervision mm -hmm. under guidance, maybe we as the supervisor will need to model the administration of a test and then maybe slowly fade our involvement, giving cues or writing specific notes mm -hmm. or even encouraging students take this evaluation tool home, find two friends to practice with mm -hmm. so that you can become independent. Most graduate programs run anywhere from four to six semesters over a, a two-year two period of time. So again, I have great hopes that within those four to six semesters, they would have that opportunity to have that guidance provided by their clinical supervisor. I always, always ask my students, do you feel comfortable with this? Are there more tools I need to provide you for? Because tools and strategies was another one of the guidelines that I encourage for supervisors. Mm -hmm. Because there's there's only so much that they learn in graduate school, in undergrad and graduate school. And now it's it's about implementation. Yes, true. But there's just still a lot of loose ends out there that they need to experience. So, okay. So um, are we done with the evaluation piece, the diagnostic piece? Yes, we are. Yes, yes. Should we move on to treatment? Okay, let's do it. All right. So under treatment, and this is my area that I so adore because I do love doing therapy, but looking at treatment, some of the expectations there is how do you create appropriate intervention plans that have measurable and achievable goals. And whether you're writing a plan of care or whether you're writing an individual educational plan program in the IEP, both of those need to have that considered. In addition to that, it's important that graduate students have the opportunity to collaborate either with other professionals and or students or clients and having them part of the planning process. And again, whether you're writing an IEP, you have a great opportunity to collaborate there, or whether you're writing a plan of care, there again, when you're meeting with those team members, collaboration is critical. Mm -hmm. In addition to looking at those intervention plans, you have to put them to practice. And again, here is where I say the word practice is so important. 
graduate students need that again modeling the cueing by the supervisor and the opportunity to practice those intervention plans and again maybe one plan we use with one group of students or clients could be totally different from another plan that we'll be implementing in the next half hours so again let them have that opportunity create time if you can to do reflection and here's where i give feedback upon feedback this went well Let's consider changing this. Maybe a different type of wording might be important. So again, it's important, especially when they're practicing implementation, we give them our feedback. Yeah. In addition to doing therapy, it's so helpful to have access to appropriate materials and instrumentation. That's going to be critical, not now, but again, for the rest of their careers, because again, having good materials that teach what we want to teach that address those measurable and achievable goals that's so critical not only for the graduate student but also for the student or client whom they're providing the service to. Another important one besides materials is sequencing tasks. I'm a huge put it in order um, individual because I think not only does that following a pattern or routine give us comfort but it also gives our students or our clients that sense of I know this is first, this is next, and again, following a plan or procedure so that life has a lot of sequences already built within that, again, gives us that feeling of confidence, efficiency, and being effective. Mm -hmm. So as we teach those sequences, it's important I always say, tell the student or the client what you want them to know. Give them an appropriate introduction and explanation of the task. Whether you're learning something new or whether you're reviewing something you've already worked on, it's so important. Tell them, this is what we're going to do today, and this is how we'll follow the steps. Because from there, it then will allow the graduate students to measure the outcomes and evaluate if changes need to be made or continue if we can move on to other goals and objectives. Following that, as we measure data and evaluate, it's important that we give our students or our clients appropriate models, prompts, and cues. As we as the clinical supervisor starts to fade those models, prompts, and cues, our graduate students then assume those roles and they too use model, prompts, and cues as they do intervention. Right, let me jump in here if I may. Okay, so you have um, a graduate student that is, you know, starting, and let's say that you, the supervisor, you know, you've been working with this student or students, if you're in the schools. Right, yes. And, you know, you know them, but this graduate student does not. How long do they observe you? What's the process? Do you uh, dismiss therapy five minutes early and talk about what you did and answer any questions that the graduate student has? What are some of the specifics for, let's just say for now, for getting started? Right. I usually try to teach in the here and now. So if I'm doing something, let's say I'm working with an augmentative communicator mm -hmm. and definitely it will be using modeling on a device. So I will model, I want more, and then we open up more game. And so again, I'll model that. And then I'll say to the graduate student, okay, you now do the same model through 
and then we'll come back. We teach another skill. I'll teach, and then I step away, and I'll say, you follow that pattern, and again, they'll model. I prefer if I can teach in the here and now model, have them try, and then usually about the last two, three minutes of a session or before we're starting to wrap up, I'll say, any questions in regards to what we did with this student? And I love it when children look at us, they'll look at me and I'll say, we're all learning together right. again, <laughs> you know. So then I ask before we come back for the next session, it might be the next day or the next week, I might say, tell me how much you want me to show or tell me if you want to begin and I'll fade. And so again, here again, talking about feedback is so important, whether I've spoken it or I've written it, because I want their feedback too. I am there to be their guidance. And again, that's so critical to building that confidence, that success, not only for the graduate student, but also the success that we want our students when we're working with to see also. Right. So it's truly very individualized. I see some students who are very cautious. I have some graduate students could not, could not fail. And I always say, you will learn more from your mistakes than you will from what has gone well. Uh -huh. And so again, I'll say, this is why if you make a mistake, this is okay, because I'm here and we're working together because I want you to feel comfortable as I fade. And again, only 25% of their time while they're in their externship or being supervised, am I to be there? To me, for some, that's perfect. For others, sometimes they need more. And not that I can't provide more. You certainly can go beyond the 25% as a supervisor if needed. And it should be. It should be given as needed based off of the confidence and the competency of the graduate student. You know, I'm thinking about the interaction between the two mm -hmm. and how important it is for the, the new potential SLP to get their feet wet Yes, and to experience a variety of techniques. And are you uh, there and supporting them to try another technique? If, you know, if they so desire, maybe they learn something in a class and they say, boy, I'd like to give this a try, or I read it in a journal article, yes. you know, would you mind if I tried it? Are, are you open to them, you know, stretching and, you know, flying off a little bit on their own to try and, and determine what works for that child and for them? Yes. Oh, no. And that falls under one of my guidelines of vision. I want them to be reading about disorder areas. I want mm -hmm. them to be reading about evidence-based practice. And I always say, you will never go wrong accessing the ASHA practice portal because there again, it will build your areas of interest and expertise. We are always looking for research and new interventions that again, are evidence-based for a student. All right, keep us going here. You have more for implementation? Okay. I will. All right. One last thing, and it's last thing under implementation is looking at and identifying and preparing that student or client for services as needed. And that's going to be so important because again, what we do today will hopefully impact and generalize into tomorrow for our students. Mm -hmm. So the last area, Shar, is professionalism. And again, that's an area that I think students begin to grow in. And again, it comes with 
confidence, it comes with experience, and it comes as they start to feel they develop an expertise in developing their background knowledge. So um, you're talking about meeting with other professionals, meeting with the parents, um, those kinds of things, or maybe even if you're in the schools going into the classroom when we're doing such things. I know we're not doing that now, yes. but the, are those the kinds of things that you're talking about? Correct. Correct. So just helping them build upon their demonstration of knowledge and being interdependent, um, having them start to make some clinical reasoning and demonstrate their knowledge. Um, most importantly, following federal, state, and institutional regulations, um, communicating effectively. That is so, and I always say, you are an SLP, we are, we are good communicators, but how do we express that when we're doing a, an evaluation report or talking about an IEP, talking about plans or changes that we want to make for our students and clients. Um, I think the most important one that I so embrace is establishing rapport. Not only rapport with um, parents, colleagues, but we definitely rapport with our clients and our students. And I always say, if there's anything that you should do first is build rapport because that builds trust. And again, trust builds greater communication. Exactly. You know, I was reading Facebook the other day and a therapist was saying that um, another professional in the meeting decided to read her report word for word. <laughs> and I think, yeah, that's an ouch. Um, how do you approach that? Uh, you know, you go into the meeting and they observe you um, in action, you know, for one or two meetings, and then you turn them loose? Or do you do like a, a maybe a role play and a mock up? Mm -hmm. Do you specify here's what you do first, second, third, or here's what works for me? Mm -hmm. Or how do you approach that in kind of a detailed way? It's a good, very good question. Um, I model first. And so I'll say, you know what, I'll present the report. And then I'll say, these are some of the rules of thumb. Number one, Never, ever read your evaluation report to the people at the table. That's rule yes. one. Yes. Rule two, yes. I'll say, if you feel like you're nervous about this or feel anxious about this, I always say, write just keywords down if you need that. Or other words, I keep a list you know, of things specific in my head that I want to share. And I always say, number one, start with something positive about this child. And there have been a few children where we've had to dig deep, but we can do it. There is a positive for every child. I promise. Sure, of course. Then talk, talk about the, the needs that you want to address. Then set the expectations, not only for the team, but also for the child and maybe for home. And then my last one that I say you want to end on a good note, tell them how you are going to establish rapport and build a relationship with their child. Mm-hmm. And again, following those four rules of thumb, I'll say, that's what your evaluation report. And I've had graduate students say around, well, you don't think I should tell them about the standard deviations? I said, will, will that mean anything to a parent? Do they look at their child as numbers? No, they do not. So stay away from numbers. Yes, we have to have numbers by law because that's the qualifiers that we have for for the state where we work in. Mm -hmm. But again, think about you're talking to a parent or a guardian 
think about what might they want to hear because they too know that if there's been an evaluation, there might be some concerns, but how do you relay that in a proactive manner so that they know you have their child's best interests at heart? Yeah, you kind of have to put yourself in the place of that parent, don't you? So true. Yes. Because, yeah, they're not used to being in that setting, whatever the setting is. Right. You know, they're not a speech language, educational, medical, whatever, professional. And uh, it can be kind of scary, I think, yes. as a parent. And a parent might feel, oh, it's, you know, it's me against all of these people. Correct. And it's so very important. Like you said, the word rapport. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I don't know, whatever you call it, it's uh, letting that parent know that they're important and that whatever they think also matters right. because they are the parent. They've been around that child for, you know, seven, 10, 12 years, however long they know their child. So, you know, I think that's so very important. And that kind of harkens back. When, even when I was in the schools, I would try, I didn't always make it, but I would always try to touch bases with the parent on the phone yes. or via email prior to evaluating the child or at least during evaluating. True. So that when we all came into that IEP meeting, we were not total strangers. Yes. So important. And that, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I mean, that can begin that chain of familiarity and of trust yep. uh, right off the yes. bat. So, you know, that the case history is, is important, but I think just touching bases with that parent. And then you go into the meeting and we have some level of trust and, and we know one another. Yes. And hopefully that makes the parent feel better and also makes me as a therapist feel more like I can interact with that parent. And then that leads to, because again, I think this is an area some of our students, graduate students, as they're getting ready, it's like that last semester that they're in school is our field involves counseling. And again, mm. counseling, I guess, germane toward communication disorders. And again, counseling that we provide to our colleagues, to families, to caregivers, other relevant others, and definitely to our students and our clients. So again, we, we're never going to walk away from that. Some of our students, graduate students, have even gone over to take a few counseling courses just to have that background, how, again, what does that communication look like, the effective oral communication that's needed, and then also under professional, what is that effective written communication? Yes. So a course and tour counseling will never lead you down the wrong road, but again, will help support your practice and your professionalism. Good. Yeah. You're talking about so many different levels of knowledge. If somebody gets bored in this field, <laughs> then I'm thinking, really? Are, are you an SLP? Right, right. <laughs> I have never right, been no, bored. No. There's always more to learn. Always right, more. Right. Now, I want to ask you another question here, and this one is it's a little bit negative. Okay. I'll just say it, but, but it's called reality. And I've seen this happen. I, I used to teach in a university setting and, a, and I sent graduate students out, you know, to their practicum mm -hmm. and this would happen every once in a while. Sure. Okay. What if a graduate student is just not finding success? Okay. okay. In a particular setting and, you know, certain issues occur. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you do? And that's a very good question. And it's happened um, where I've been the supervisor and I'm not seen. So the first thing I always tell my students is we all need to be flexible. 
And again, like I said, two semesters short of personally graduating myself, I didn't think speech pathology was for me either. Mm -hmm. And again, I do think it's important. And here we are, practice what we preach, good communication. And I think if we start to see that as a clinical supervisor, that this graduate student, sometimes their coursework can be impeccable. But when it comes to that establishing rapport and building relationships, it's a challenge. And so again, I think it has to be addressed early on. And I can see I've had tears. I've had graduate students become angry, but I always tell them, again, you have invested much time, but I don't want you to finish and find out this truly was not your profession that you feel comfortable in. And so again, if change cannot occur and we like I said, there isn't the flexibility to be able to establish rapport, be part of a team, be a collaborative team player, then I think there might need to be truly some reflection about what is not going well. Can they make that change? And if they cannot, what are the alternative options that might need to be considered? We ourselves have what we call remediation plans that we do. And then sometimes students, I realize we cannot always choose what goes on in our personal lives. We've had graduate students who have had personal challenges along the way. And again, they can either make the decision to take a break from graduate school at our university. I can only speak for our university, but we've allowed them to come back when they feel comfortable, we have set a deadline because again, the longer you stay away, you start to lose those skills and and experiences that you've had up to that point. Mm -hmm. But again, like I said, we are good communicators and we as supervisors need to have that conversation early on. Um, I've had students, you know, share things, very personal things. And again, we speak to them in confidence, but there again, we are only there to help them determine is this career right for them or is there something else that might be more fitting to them with what their current education has brought them forth with right it's that counseling thing that you were talking about (laughs) yes yes yes. yeah do you do you contact the uh university professor and maybe the three of you talk about this or okay we have a great we have a graduate studies um person and we also have a chair within our department so the graduate Mm -hmm. studies person the clinical supervisor and the chair would all meet to then if the continue if this continues normally you begin with a first meeting just the clinical supervisor and the graduate student and if things do not change within a week or two then we pull another team meeting again and bring in other team members Oh, yeah, that's that's a tough one. It is. It's hard. It is. Um, Mary Beth, do you have a particular graduate student that you recall? Obviously, you're not going to say the person's name, but do you have one that you would like to share? Maybe a, you know, a glowing success, (laughs) you know, that you've had? Yes, I do. I have two. And again, they both have gone different routes. They happen to be They were both graduate assistants of mine. Um, As I am the director of a regional assistive technology center, they both were assigned to me while they were doing their 
um, while they were attending graduate school and have, it got to know them very well. Again, working in assistive technology, augmentative alternative communications. Um, one went the medical route and the other went the public school. And like I said, they we still stay in contact, which is wonderful. And I was very fortunate to not only be their supervisor for graduate assistant, but also in the clinical setting too. Um, I'd say the qualities of both of those individuals, number one, they had awesome leadership skills. They were um, they, they were willing to lead something, train something, teach others, and again, they may not have known, but they've turned around and said, I'll know where to find how to learn more about that. So they demonstrated just that awesome leadership quality. They also were independent. Um, not only they would ask questions, we'd model through and they'd say, I want to try this myself next. Mm -hmm. And and that was wonderful. I remember we had a very challenging evaluation, a very unique child with multiple medical needs. And I sat down with one of the students and she said, could I put the plan together first and then share it with you and we'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is where she needs to be. So just embracing to see those skills. And then the other thing is they're, they were both collaborative. I mean, they could, they'd pull in other graduate students that were part of teams that we were preparing for evaluations or co-clinician work where they could, they could have two graduate students working with a, with a client or a student. And again, they were always reflective of what other people had to say. They were visionary in what they were hoping to achieve in that collaborative work. But again, um, they both are out in practice right now. They are being successful. I have another student. She also is a graduate assistant who will be graduating, already has a job, and she too. The leadership, her collaboration, her communication, all are phenomenal. And, and so again, so exciting to see who's coming out into the world of work and what gifts and talents they will have to offer. Oh, how nice. And then they will pay it forward to someone else. Yes, I sure hope so. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very exciting. I love it. Mary Beth, you are a wealth of information. I always enjoy hearing all of your experiences and you are such an organized person and you you share it in such a very easy to listen to way and I appreciate you so very much, Mary Beth. Thank you, Shar. It's been a pleasure to share. Again, I like you know it. What a profession we are in and the wealth that we have available to us as speech-language pathologists. Amen. Yes. Thank you so much, Mary Beth. Thank you, Shari. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Speech Link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the easy R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them, and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to SpeechDynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now.